everyone, it's Eugene here and welcome. This is episode 87 of Forensics Talks and my guest today is Pat Wertheim. So let's talk about Pat, Pat Wertheim, and he began his career in law enforcement in 1973. In fact, I, I was a, I was still in, well, would have been close to getting out of diapers at around that time. So he's been doing this for a very long time. He served as a police officer, detective sergeant, training officer, and all the while doing crime scene investigation and latent print you know, fingerprint comparisons. In 1986, he realigned his career to focus exclusively on fingerprints. And that's where many people know Pat from. He's worked for local police, state law enforcement in Arizona and in Texas. And he's one of the foremost leading latent print instructors around. And uh, he's very well known to a lot of people have, you know, been trained by Pat in the past. And he's also worked on a number of major cases in criminal and civil investigations. And he's exposed frauds involving fabricated evidence, which we're definitely going to talk to him about, erroneous identifications, and even forged fingerprints. Some of his better known cases include Shirley McKee case. Actually, I saw a presentation on that way back in somewhere around 2010 when he presented at the Toronto Police Training Conference, David Asprey case, Alan McNamara case, a bunch of different ones. Even another case on a civil investigation that's into a suspected uh, fake Jackson Pollock painting. So we want to ask him about all these interesting things that he's been working on over the years. So let me bring him in here. There he is. Hey, Pat, welcome. Thank you. It's, it's good to be here. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. And uh, I tell you, you know, we've only spoken for a few minutes, but uh, in my, uh, you know, online searches and stuff like that, I really just sort of uh, just fell in love with all the posts that you have been doing on LinkedIn. Just they're very honest and open and they talk about real problems and real issues that are, you know, in uh, forensics in general, not just not just for latent print examiners. So, yeah, I really appreciate uh, your honest and open post because I don't think a lot of people post that honestly about some of the topics, including one that you said, you know, where you made a mistake in the past and things like that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you about your past. And, um, you know, I normally ask people, hey, you know, go back and, you know, talk to me about how things started or whatever. But there were a couple of things that struck me because I've been doing a little bit of research on you. So tell me about baking because I'm not a good baker, but apparently there's, there's, this runs in your family. And so I'm fascinated with baking. And during the pandemic, like a lot of people, I started baking bread. So I may have to talk to you after this about, you know, what I'm doing wrong. So, uh, yeah, but tell me about the, the, the baking. Well, my dad owned a bakery. I grew up in a bakery, uh, went to, uh, Texas A&M university, got a degree in geophysics. And of course that would include over 20 hours of math and 20 hours of geology, more than 20 hours of physics, although A&M didn't recognize minors. But it was a 150-hour degree program that you were supposed to complete in four years, and I squeezed it into five. Um, when I graduated, the geophysics business was in a terrible slump, and there were no jobs. But I knew baking, so I opened a little bakery. And we kept it afloat for a little over a year. And then the big supermarket in town opened an in-store bakery and just slammed us. Uh. But I had come to know every cop in the town of Kerrville, Texas, on a first-name basis because they line up the back door at 4 o'clock. That's when the donuts came off the fryer every morning. And so when I closed the bakery, they said, well, Pat, why don't you come to work with us? Uh, we've got an opening. I needed a job. I had a family. And so I went to work as a police officer. There was no 
uh, desire to be a police officer. It was just, to me at that time, it was just a job. I was only one with a college degree. And so the assistant chief asked me if I would like to go through training for fingerprints and be the fingerprint expert. So I did. And I fell in love with it. And I've been doing it ever since. Uh, so I, I wouldn't recommend that route to anybody today. <laughs> but 50 years ago, it worked for me. Right, right. Well, so like, would you consider yourself more of a, like, were you a science kind of person or are you more like a creative person? Because I noticed in your in your CV, there's even, you did, you attempted some things at art school. Well, that's true. And uh, I, I did an editorial for the uh, Journal of Forensic Identification back in the, ooh, the mid-90s that I call the ability equation. And the, the impetus behind that editorial was that uh, I was hammered all the way through my early training that training and experience is what makes expertise. And if that were true, then the senior examiner with the most training would be the best examiner in any department. And I think anybody that works in latent print section knows that's not necessarily true. But when I was training, I had a class in Arlington, Texas in 1990 or 91, in which I had maybe 20 students, and some of them were men with over 20 years of experience. And there was one young male examiner with five years of experience who could outperform any of the senior examiners. But even more surprising, there was a young woman who was a crime scene technician that had never done latent prints in her life. And she outperformed everybody else in that class. Well, I realized that this young lady and this young man had something in common that nobody else in that class had. They were so far ahead of everybody else. And so I started talking to them uh, during the breaks and I would take them out to lunch and talk to them. And finally, on the Thursday of that week long class at lunch, I remembered clearly the, the moment when I found out exactly what they had that nobody else did. They both had college degrees in art. Now, it's not the college degree that made them better fingerprint examiners, but they had the artist's brain. Fingerprint comparison is memorizing one image and then recognizing it again when you see it in a different um, incantation of that image. And that is art. So when we're asking court, is fingerprint identification science or art? I will answer, well, it's a little bit of both. There is, is a, a, a sound scientific basis for it in the embryology, the formation of the fingerprints, and in the morphology, the structure of friction skin that makes the details persistent. But when you're comparing two images to determine if they were made by the same friction ridge skin, which is to say the, the, the same fingerprint, then that comparison is itself a, an art form. It's it's looking at two images, it's recognize, recognizing similarities, recognizing differences to form a conclusion as to, as to the source of the unknown print. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting comparison. And I sort of framed the question like, you know, were you more artistic and more scientific? But I know a lot of people that, I mean, you've obviously studied forensic science for, you know, different aspects of it for 
decades now. But I bet you if I go through and a lot of the people that I know who I would consider technical, they're also very artistic. They're also people who love music, they love art, or they, they can draw, they can do different things like that, which can be very helpful. And I think that's, you're right, I think that makes, uh, make you more proficient in certain areas. Well, I started looking at that also, and Glenn Langenberg did an informal study on that when he read my editorial. Uh, and he started looking at the hobbies of the better latent print examiners in his classes. And he found out that women are all over the board. Uh, they all, the, the really good female examiners had hobbies that involved art of some kind. Could be painting, it could be drawing, it could be cake decorating, it could be quilting or sewing. But there was some artistic hobby they had. And f- funny, but with men... The dominant hobby of the best latent print examiners was woodworking, some form of woodworking, Glenn discovered. So he sort of uh, unofficially backed up my earlier observation that it's the artist's brain that makes the good fingerprint expert uh, proficient at comparing prints. Very interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. And Glenn, Glenn was actually a past guest on the uh, on the Forensic Stocks as well. And so I've had some conversations with him. And uh, yeah, very, very bright guy. And he also has his own podcast. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's been doing some great work and, and some really great studies too, which I may want to lead into some of the work that you're doing later on with uh, Christophe Shampoo and, and things like that. So, I mean, you started off in so you were like patrol, you were doing patrol, like just a police officer on the, on, you know, doing the beat and, and on the road kind of thing that that's your first sort of role. Right. And training back then was so much different. When they hired me, they gave me the badge and gun and uniform and said, basically go out and use good judgment. They, they, they assigned me to a senior officer for four weeks of training, riding with a senior officer. My senior officer who trained me had 18 months of experience. And after four weeks of training, they cut me loose. And I showed up one day. I was the only cop on duty in the whole town. I mean, it's such a different world today. Uh, When I got my first crime scene call, I remember pulling up to the call. I was still just brand new. And as I was getting out of the squad car, the sergeant pulled up and he said, what you got, wartime? And I said, well, it's a burglary call. Do we take fingerprints or pictures or anything and he said yeah there's a camera in the glove box and a fingerprint kit in the trunk handle it and he put it in gear and drove off Uh, so my first burglary scene that was all the training i had Um, and the camera was a little instamatic a little cartridge camera and they bought little 12 exposure rolls of black and white film and you were expected to use no more than one roll per crime scene so I look at how far we've come in 50 years and it's just amazing. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I, I, I've heard some stories from some of the uh, older police officers uh, and yeah, it's, it makes, makes you wonder about how things were done, but that's the way it was, right? We didn't like, mean, there's things you probably, well, that's a good question. So what kinds of things were done back when you started that maybe are no longer done today? Like what are some of the, maybe the obvious things that for you are like, yeah, thank goodness we're not doing that anymore. Well, for for example, when I was a cop in Kerrville in the seventies, there was no backup. If I had a burglary in progress call, uh, I was, I got to go to the building, a burglar alarm was going off. I did the building search. If anybody was in there, you arrested him. Uh, If you got in a fight, you got in a fight and there was nobody going to come help you. Uh, 
I look at the police training and the responses today, and I wonder if the, if the cops today could do the job I did. But at the same time, I look at what they have to deal with today, and I couldn't do that job. Uh, it's, it's a totally different world. The last several years, I've worked at the Fort Worth Police Department Academy as a role player in, in the uh, reenactment situations where the cadets will have to run into a situation and we role players will, will act out a scenario and they have to handle it. And I had none of that. I, if I got into a mental case uh, situation, incident, I had to figure that out as I went along. If I got into a bar fight or an unruly mob, um, it was mine, one cop, one that was it, and we had to handle it with no training. So working in the Fort Worth Police Academy and the, uh, the, the training that those new cadets go through for months and months, uh, just, I wish I'd had something like that when I got into the business. And the same is true in the forensic sciences. My, my original class was a two-week class in crime scene and fingerprinting. Two weeks. We had to learn Henry classification. We had to be able to search and file uh, through the Texas DPS card file, which at the time was about three million cards. Um, we learned to do comparison, and by the time I went back home after two weeks of training, I was doing the comparisons and testifying, and that wouldn't fly today. And I look back, and it's just, it's shocking yeah. <laughs> uh, that we were thrown into things with so little training, either as a cop or as a forensic scientist back then. So how did you make your way from, you know, from a cop to getting into focusing in on latent prints? Uh, I had learned latent print comparison in, in Kerrville. Like I said, the assistant chief there had asked me if I wanted to be the fingerprint officer shortly after I had go, on, gone there, and I, I did. And when I moved to Plano, Texas in 1980, within a couple of weeks, the whole ID section at Plano PD just up and walked off the job. Two weeks, uh, as soon as you arrived. I don't know what yeah. that say. <laughs> well, they were civilian, and I don't okay. know what ticked them off. <laughs> but I wrote a memo up chain of command to the chief saying, hey, look, I know ID work. I can handle this till we can replace them. And so he made me the ID officer temporarily. Um, and I pretty well stayed in ID work. Even when we got an ID unit, I went back on the street. I would still get called out for crime scenes. I was still doing a lot of the fingerprint comparisons and verifications. And in 1990, uh, 1986, the chief called me in and he said, Pat, I want you to check out a smooth car and drive down to, and he named a suburb near Austin, Texas. And he said, I want you to drive down there and talk to the city manager. And he didn't tell me what it was about. So I grabbed a smooth car and drove down to this uh, town near Austin. The city met the city manager. He showed me around the town, and he offered me the police chief's job. And on the way back up to Plano, I had uh, the, the epiphany that I didn't want to go into police management. I didn't want to go into police administration. I loved my fingerprint work. And so the following Monday, I walked into the chief's office and put the badge and gun on his desk and resigned and told him I wanted the job in ID that we had open at the time. So 
I went civilian, uh, did ID work there, and I set my goal as a bench-level latent print examiner, non-supervisory, at a state lab. At the time, Texas was not hiring latent print examiners outside. You had to go to work in the criminal history records section for at least 10 years before you could expect to become a latent print examiner. But Arizona DPS had an opening shortly thereafter for latent print examiners, so I moved to Arizona and worked in the Tucson laboratory as latent print examiner there. Oh, interesting. And uh, there was, uh, as you were speaking, I, I want to ask you something about a post that you made um, regarding uh, the way fingerprints were done early on. And I think you, I think the, the way you started the post had to do with like uh, thorough and complete and, and now it's like one and done or hit and quit, like you have these sayings or whatever. So can you tell me about what, what the changes were there? Well, when I was in Plano, uh, Chief James McCarley, insisted on providing absolutely the best services to all of the citizens of Plano. Uh, Plano was a very rich community. It was a white flight community. Um, I didn't know that when I went to work there, but I learned it pretty quick. Um, All of the business executives from Dallas said, I shouldn't say all, that's a broad generalization. A large number of business executives from Dallas had moved north of the county line after the 1964 and 65 Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act. And Plano had grown from just a small little farming town, primarily onions were raised in the fields around Plano. And the Plano School District uh, was funded very, very well, but because of the property taxes and the the income levels of the influx of of, uh, businessmen moving into Plano, All of the city services were funded very, very well. And we had plenty of people to do every crime scene to the nth degree, Mm. uh, total and complete. And we had no backlog. We got things done as soon as it came in because we had plenty of staffing. Well, that, uh, that is no longer the case. Tax cuts after tax cuts after tax cuts now have rendered most agencies incapable of providing that kind of service. And so thorough and complete has kind of gone out the window. And some agencies now are even notifying their detectives of APHIS hits without having those hits identified and verified through the normal latent print process. Because the backlog is so great and the staffing is so minimal that they can't even begin to keep up with the work. And that was true in Arizona. When I left Arizona in uh, 2010 to go to the Army Crime Lab, I had the Southern Lab all to myself. I covered five counties and 85 agencies in Arizona. I had a backlog of about uh, about 600 cases. I was working about, five, about uh, 50 cases per month. I was doing crime scenes, processing in the lab, doing my comparisons, and testifying. Um, It was a totally different world by that point, by 2010, than what I had enjoyed back in the uh, 1980s in Plano. Do you think that technology, because of the the computerized systems that we have and the searching capabilities and things like that, has, has helped... It, it, to the point where pe- that's why people might be saying that, oh, you know, we can we don't have to do as much. Or do you think it's just it has to do with backlog and tax dollars? 
Oh, no doubt about the technology. I mean, every new tool you can add to your toolbox, it doesn't matter if you're an auto mechanic or, or an astronaut or, or a forensic scientist in a crime lab. Every new tool you can add gives you greater capability. But at the same time, an over-reliance on technology, I think, uh, tends to obscure the fact that some of the earlier methods are still some of the best methods. I loved the movie uh, Skyfall, and I think most people miss the whole moral of that story. But in one of the very early scenes, Eve Moneypenny is shaving James Bond with a straight razor, and she comments that sometimes the old ways are the best. And in one of the very late scenes of that movie, the caretaker at uh, the estate Skyfall pulls out a heavy old antique knife and slams it on the table with all of the machine guns and modern weapons. And he slams that knife down and says, sometimes the old ways are the best. And lo and behold, it's with that knife that James Bond kills the bad guy. But the point is, we overlook the old ways I look at some of the prints that, um, that, that, that are being developed today with all fancy uh, chemical processing and, and, and super glue fuming and dye staining. And I think, you know, on a fresh surface back in the old days, I could have done better than that with just plain black powder. But I don't think the new technique or the new uh, technicians are trained how to use the old powders correctly. The old ways are falling away to technology, or as uh, Roland Menzel, funny, because he's the guy that basically brought lasers into the fingerprint business. But I was working with Roland in his lab in Lubbock, Texas one time, and he bemoaned all of the modern flash and trash <laughs> that's taking over the field. And I loved hearing the father of forensic laser technology uh, talking about flash and trash. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he was right. Uh, there tends to be too much of reliance on new technology uh, without a fair and honest evaluation of the old techniques against the modern. Mm -hmm. What what were some of the more memorable cases you had where, for example, you might have looked at you know a piece of evidence and said, I don't think I'm going to get anything out of this. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, bang, you got something like, did you have any? You must have had a few situations like that, I'm sure. Oh, I, I did. I've had, oh, yeah, a number of them. I mean, when you've done it for 50 years, you're going to have some of those where I think most examiners could go a whole career and not get a good fingerprint off a shell casing. And yet I've made a murder case off of a fired shell casing that I removed from a revolver. We had a neat case uh, that was a grave robbery. Uh, a, a grave uh, crypt had been broken into in Benson, Texas. And six months later, a Satanist up in, in Phoenix was arrested with a skull. And he claimed he had got it from a friend. But we went back and reopened the crypt in Benson. And the Benson ID tech swabbed the, the huckles, the bars along the side of the coffin. And lo and behold found the DNA of the guy in Phoenix who had had the skull, which put the lie to his claim that he got it from, uh, from somebody on the black market up there. Uh, 
I got an egg off of an eggshell once in a vandalism at a high school. It just blew me away. This beautiful <laughs> fingerprint on an eggshell. So you fingerprint enough things, you're going to get some things that surprise you. Yeah, for sure. Let me ask you about what was, um, I'm sure you, you've seen a lot of dumb criminals, but did you ever have any criminals that were really exceptional? So they, they knew what was going on and they were trying to deceive and cover things up and it made things difficult for you. Were there any, any, any sort of cases where it's like, wow, this, somebody was thinking about their crime. I don't think we catch the smart ones, <laughs> but, but let me tell you about one of the stupid ones. Guy we arrested once, a woman had stayed home from work and she was very sick and somebody rang her doorbell and she thought, no, I'm not going to get up and answer the doorbell. I feel, um, she felt so miserable. She was laying in bed. She just let the doorbell ring, figured door-to-door salesman or something. A few minutes later, she heard glass break in another part of her house. So she reached over and picked up the phone and called the police. Our officers arrived and arrested the guy there on the scene. And he had a pretty good M.O. I mean, his M.O. was, was solid. He would steal a car from a high school parking lot in Dallas after lunch figuring that the kids wouldn't miss the car until after school was out. So he would have maybe two hours of use of this car before it was reported stolen. Then he would drive up to Plano and commit a burglary and drive back down to Dallas and abandon the car. And they caught him in the house where this lady had called in. So we've got him dead to rights. Well, I go back to fingerprint him. He had been wearing gloves, and so there were no fingerprints at the scene. I fingerprinted the window he had broken, the glass shards that he had pulled out and thrown away on the ground. Of course, he was wearing gloves. So two weeks later, one of the burglary detectives comes back to me and says, Pat, did you just go out to that burglary on such and such street? And I said, yeah, I did. He said, did you get any good fingerprints? And I said, oh, got some beautiful fingerprints at, at point of entry. And he said, would you compare him to so-and-so for me? And I said, that'd be pointless. He wears gloves. His ammo includes gloves. And the detective says, well, just humor me here. Have a look. So, I, okay, I pulled out his fingerprints, and they all matched. Had him dead to rights. Well, the next day when they brought him to jail, I was curious. So I went back into the jail. I said, hey, you remember me? I was the guy that fingerprinted you about two weeks ago when they arrested you for burglary. He said, oh, yeah, I remember you. I said, when you were arrested for burglary two weeks ago, you were wearing gloves, right? And he said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I said, well, when you did that burglary yesterday, you weren't wearing gloves. Why is that? And he says, oh, man, y'all kept my gloves. (laughs) And I kind of thought, you're committing felonies here that will throw you in prison and you're not going to go shoplift a pair of gloves? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure I've had some smart criminals um, that I haven't caught. I look at the uh, Marianne Holmes murder. I don't know if you uh, went back and read uh, the posts on that one. Uh, 1995 in Thatcher, Arizona, where uh, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's unsolved. Uh, the local police threw up the names of several suspects they believed, but I, I don't believe any of those were the guilty party. I believe it was a Ted Bundy type of cross-country killer that uh, we never never were able to identify. Um, and I, I'm sure I've seen some others. Um, I have another question regarding 
the, another post that you did, and I think it's a really good question. And that was, you know, how many points is enough, right? And this is a really, it's a really interesting point because maybe you could have just a few points that were just really strong, very unique, very different or, or whatever, highly characteristic or highly unique, I should say. And then, you know, maybe you could have a lot of weak points or whatever. So how do you, how do you, what was that post about that you had and, and what were you trying to communicate with that? Well, that, that was a post uh, in response to a question that I had been asked by a guy who's not a fingerprint expert. Uh, he's an expert on police corruption and such, but not a fingerprint expert. And he'd ask me, how many points does it take? So I did a, a, a pretty lengthy reply uh, to the fact that it's not just some threshold number of points. That's a lie that is perpetuated by TV cop shows and movies. But there is no number of points. It's it's a combination of the quantity of points with the clarity of the points. Because we work at three levels of detail. We work at the, at the general overall pattern level. We also compare the points, which and a point would be where a ridge comes to a, an abrupt ending and two adjacent ridges close in the gap, uh, or where one ridge splits into two ridges and the adjacent ridges widen to accommodate that splitting of the ridge. And basically, any other, you could list islands and uh, enclosures and other things, but those are all a combination of either ridge ending or bifurcations or splitting ridges. And then we work at a third level of detail, level three, which are very fine details, frequently uh, requiring high magnification to see. And those occur within a single ridge. So it might be the sweat pores or little bumps on the edges of the ridge or incipient ridges, little tiny hairline ridges uh, between regular ridges. And all of those are known as level three detail. So if you ask what's the fewest number of points on which an identification has ever been made, there was one published out of the state of... Uh, Illinois, I believe, in uh, about 2001. No, yeah, Illinois. There was a zero point identification. It was so crystal clear and there was so much matching detail between the latent fingerprint and the known fingerprints of the suspect. The, uh, I think it was Dave Grieve brought that fingerprint before SwigFast and presented it. That was a scientific working group on friction ridge analysis, science and technology, analysis, study and technology. The acronym was SwigFast. Mm -hmm. And we were the body that uh, for about 20 years set the guidelines and standards for the operation of a fingerprint bureau. He brought it to SwigFast and every single person there agreed that it was a correct identification. Now, it was uh, a, a prohibited possessor a guy who, by virtue of previous felony convictions and being on parole, was prohibited from, from uh, possessing weapons. And the fingerprint was recovered on the convex surface of the glass telescopic sight on a rifle that he had uh, hidden in his home, I believe. And so the question, he denied any knowledge of the rifle. And this fingerprint was developed on the, the curved convex glass of the telescopic site. And so that fingerprint comparison, even though that fingerprint did not have a single bifurcation or ridge ending, it had 
beautiful level three detail. The, the sweat pours, the bumps on the ridges, the incipient ridges, everything in that print matched so perfectly that all of the fingerprint examiners at that SwigFast meeting agreed, that's him. And the guy pled guilty. It never went to court and got tested. I wish it had. Uh, John Vanderkolk came up with a conceptual graph that he called the QQ graph back in the, uh, no, I, I don't remember the year, but the QQ quality and quantity where conceptually he hypothesized that you could graph the quality of a print on the y-axis of, of a graph and the quantity of details on the x-axis. And Squeakfast continued to work on that. And at one point I suggested, why does this have to be conceptual? Why can't we just put numbers on it? And so Squeakfast uh, worked on that for several meetings. And we came up with four different um, quality levels based on how clear the print is by description and then ranged it out to 16 points and we plotted a curve um, and that, that SwigFest uh, graph is still available on the internet on several websites. In fact, I linked it on, on that post that you're referring to, I believe. Um, and there's the green zone where, where the prints are good and uh, identification is pretty much beyond debate. There's a yellow zone where we considered those to be complex comparisons. And by complex, we define that as meaning that those will require a, a higher extra documentation, better documentation than the easy prints. And they will also require a, a more stringent verification process. And then there was a red zone below which you just dare not go where the quality and the quantity are both so low that you just can't go there. And the truth is that if you plotted a thousand latent prints on that QQ graph, you'd have a thousand different points in different locations because no two prints are the same. Right. And, but isn't that the, isn't that the danger zone though? Like when you start getting down into those prints where the quality isn't that great, isn't that the, where, you know, some analysts are like, oh yeah, you know, they, they just go full force into something. And then some people are like, oh, I'm not touching that one. And there's, there's a lot of discrepancy there. Oh yes. And that's true. Uh, I think in any field of human endeavor, you're going to have some people who are more talented than others. You will have some who are more daring and you will have some who are more conservative. Uh, and that's true in latent prints as well. Now, some departments still have, in their policy and procedures, still have a minimum number of points. For example, eight points, let's say, as a minimum number. We had an eight-point minimum in Fort Worth Police Department. I worked there from 2010 through last October. But uh, that eight-point minimum was a quality control measure, not an absolute threshold, because if an identification was made below eight points, then it required a higher degree of verification. There were three certified latent print examiners. And normally, an identification had to be verified by one other examiner. But if it fell into that zone below eight points, 
Then it required a unanimous agreement of all three of the latent print examiners before it could be reported as an identification. Okay. So have you had any cases where, for example, you had a very low number of points, but they were, you know, it, it was, you felt confident that, look, these are very highly unique uh, and, you know, you could say something about, you know, identification. I have. And, uh, and actually there in Fort Worth, I had one that uh, only had five points, but it had so much beautiful level three detail. I took it before the other two examiners and they looked at it and said, mm, can't go there. They weren't comfortable with it. So it got reported out as inconclusive, as uh, not reaching a, a sufficient level of quality and quantity to be reported as an identification. What would you say is the most significant case that you worked on? Maybe like a case that sort of, um, you know, there was a, there was a, a paradigm change after that or something like that. And I, I had seen you in 2010 and talking about Shirley McKee and, and she was there with her father in Toronto here. I, I recall that uh, seeing that and I didn't know you at the time, but I remember it was a super interesting case. And I sat through the whole thing and it was several, I think I recall it being the several hours of presentation. Um, but was, was, was that one of the biggest ones for you or which was a milestone case for you? Oh, there were a number of them. Uh, from the standpoint of police identification, the John Patrick Eastlack case uh, in which I identified John Patrick Eastlack in uh, Arizona as the murderer of Lester and Kay Sherrill. And I believe that was 1991. Uh, he was uh, an escaped convict, but totally nonviolent. He engaged in forgery and, and fraud, theft like that, but he'd never been violent. And in brainstorming, I was getting pages and pages of names from the investigators. And Eastlack's name was on one of the lists and they'd thrown it in there just in desperation. And I identified him five different places in the house where the, the Sherrills were murdered. His fingerprints were on the door frame going into the bedroom where, where Mrs. Sherrill was murdered. They were both uh, people in their late 80s. Um, she was invalid. She was confined to a wheelchair. And uh, he had beat her to death with a, with a handgun, a revolver. I found his fingerprints on the revolver. On the phone, he had ripped out of the wall on a, in the middle of a door. But we talked earlier about being thorough and complete. I also identified his fingerprints on the jug of ice water that was on the back of the top shelf in the refrigerator. Thorough and complete meant I processed everything in that house for fingerprints. I spent two days there. But to me, finding his fingerprint on that jug of ice water where he'd actually taken it out of the refrigerator, taken a drink, put the cap back on it and returned it to the refrigerator. That showed the cold-hearted nature of, of the crime. The McKee case that you talk about, uh, Shirley McKee's father, Ian McKee, who you met in Canada, Ian had called me on the phone in uh, between Christmas and New Year's of uh, 1998 and said his daughter had been accused of being in a crime scene where she had never been at the scene of a murder. And I could not understand Ian's 
uh, Scottish brogue very well at the time. I, I became quite <laughs> uh, quite expert at, at understanding uh, most of the Scottish brogue, but at the time I couldn't understand everything he was telling me except that his daughter had been identified on a fingerprint at the scene of a murder and she hadn't been there and he had, had learned that I was an expert in fingerprint forgery and so he wanted me to come he wanted me to look at the fingerprint to see if it was forged because it must have been forged because she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So uh, as luck had it, I was going to be in Scotland in a few months after that. In March, I was going to be in Scotland with Dave Grieve and David Ashball. And I said, well, sure, I'll be over in Scotland. Why don't I come over to Glasgow and I'll just look at the fingerprints for you over there. So I went to Glasgow, and I was going to look at a forgery case. And when I got there, I spent a couple of hours really looking at that latent fingerprint. It was on the door frame in the bathroom, going into the bathroom, where Marion Ross had been murdered in her home by an intruder. And I did, a, I did a, a thorough examination of that fingerprint and decided this fingerprint is not forged. This is a genuine print that represents a touch of friction red skin on the surface where it was developed. And the Scottish police had done a great job of removing that uh, door frame. So I was looking at the original door frame. And then after reaching that conclusion, I had been left alone in the room to do the examination. And I turned over, they'd left a whole stack of papers there for me. And as far as I was concerned, I was just there to look at the print for signs of forgery. But all of the lawyers, the prosecutor, the defense attorneys had all left the room. So I reached over to that stack of papers and I saw a folder that was charted fingerprint enlargements. And I opened that folder and I just looked at it and it's like, holy cow, back off. They've got 16 points charted on this, but it's not the same print. And you, you, you just shake your head and like, what am I doing wrong? Because four senior examiners at the Scottish Criminal Records Office had identified and verified that print as coming from Shirley McKee. And I shook my head again. No, that, that can't be. And the more I looked at it, the more convinced I was that that I was right. I got extra copies of the latent print. I told the lawyer I wanted to fingerprint Shirley McKee myself, but I did not want to talk to her. I did not want any communication with her or her parents or, or anybody else. I wanted simply to take my own prints from her to ensure that those were actually the ink prints that were on the chart. I knew the latent print was the latent print that was on the chart because I'd seen it on the door frame myself. And so I, I fingerprinted her, gosh, hundreds of times and mostly focusing on the fingerprint that they had identified to her. And I took that print on different card stock, different paper stock, trying to duplicate as closely as possible the direction and pressure of touch of the latent so that I was, as much as possible, I was comparing like to like for direction and pressure of touch. And it was clearly no way that that was her print. So when I went back over to uh, Edinburgh, where we were staying that night, 
I had prepared some envelopes with copies, with good photographic copies of the latent, good photographic copies of the ink print, and extra sets of those chart enlargements. And I put them in envelopes and sealed them. And when we met for dinner with Dave Grieve and David Ashball, I asked them if they could do me a favor and look at some fingerprints. Well, they knew I'd been to Glasgow to look at a fingerprint forgery case. So that's what they thought they were going to see. And I handed them each an envelope and I said, open this later in your room and have a look at it and meet with the attorney. His uh, name was um, Findlay, if, uh, um, Mr. Findlay. Anyway, um, but I don't want to talk to you about the case. You just look at those prints and meet with the lawyer Findlay and tell him what you think. And um, Dave, uh, David Ashbaugh realized quickly that he could not get involved in the case because the RCMP had a strict prohibition against that type of involvement in an outside case. But Dave Grieve looked at the prints and met with the attorney, and he and I never talked about the case until after the trial. And when the attorney asked Dave, uh, what, what did Mr. Wertheim tell you about the case? David said, nothing. And Finley raised his eyebrows and said, well, he must have told you something. And, and Dave Greaves shook his head and said, no. He gave me an envelope with these prints in them and asked me to look at them and talk to you. And the lawyer says, well, what can you tell me about the prints? And David said, well, I can tell you two things. Number one, that latent fingerprint on the doorframe is not forged. And number two, it was not made by Shirley McKee. <laughs> so up until that point, even the lawyer disbelieved Shirley McKee. Because in over 100 years of fingerprints in the United Kingdom, there had never been an erroneous identification reported up to court like that. Well, it turns out that David Asbury was convicted of the murder of uh, Marion Ross. And Shirley McKee then had been arrested for perjury. She was an investigator with Strathclyde Police, but she had testified she'd never been inside the house. And so after Asbury's trial, they arrested her for perjury. It had nothing to do with the murder. It had to do with the testimony she'd given at Asbury's trial. Asbury was convicted, so then his attorney contacted me and asked me to look at the fingerprint that convicted him. And that was a fingerprint on a sweets tin, the kind of little fancy decorative tin that you'd get candy in at Christmas. And it had Marion Ross's fingerprint on it, but it was in his closet in his apartment with a couple of thousand pounds of cash in it, a, couple, uh, a pound being the, the unit of, of currency in England. Mm -hmm. And so I said, sure, I'll look at it. And they sent it to me. And oh, my God, it's an erroneous identification also. So Asbury had already served several years in prison. He was released and his conviction was quashed after that, because without that print, they had no case. Um, the murderer of Marion Ross has never been caught. Um, but there were two fingerprints on one case that were erroneous identifications. And that just blew me away. Uh, that was one of the big cases that I was involved in. So when you looked at these prints, it would, have, would it have been clear to even a, a not as experienced 
examiner that there was an issue here or were these like more complicated? They were similar, but you know, after, you know, some investigation, you're like, yeah, yeah, I don't think they're the same, but you know, or was it fairly clear to you or should have been clear to most people that there was a difference there? There was a five point target group that on first glance could have appeared the same in the latent print and the inked print. But once you went beyond those five points, there was absolutely nothing except discrepancies. But you see, Shirley McKee was a police investigator and she actually was working on that case. And I think what happened is after they were doing after they had begun doing their eliminations, that is people with legitimate access to the scene, her prints were included because she was the one that had discovered the sweets tin in David Asbury's closet. And her prints were included for elimination purposes against the fingerprints on that, that little can that the cash was in. Well, it turns out, of course, that that was not Marion Ross's cash, David Asbury had been saving up his cash to buy a, a car and his whole family knew about it. And they, that sweet tin was one he had received for Christmas years earlier. But nonetheless, uh, uh, Shirley McKee's prints were compared to the fingerprints on the sweets tin. But the, the Scottish Criminal Records Office, who were doing the comparisons, was different from the Strathclyde police. And the Scottish Criminal Records Office did not know that that was the only thing they were supposed to compare her prints to. So they compared her fingerprints to everything. And I think they saw that little five-point target group in the latent print and saw a, a close correspondence with five points in her fingerprints. Oh, well, she's a detective. She's supposed to be there anyway. Yeah, that's her print. I learned later that some of the examiners at the Scottish Criminal Records Office that were shown that print had refused to verify it. And the original officer who'd made the identification had to shop around so he could get the required three verifications. And then it turns out that one of those other three had, had forged the signatures of the other two on the paperwork. So it was just a whole bizarre, uh, I guess the, the, the current phrase would be a perfect storm yeah. <laughs> of things going wrong. Wow. Um, there's a question here I have from Jason Keller and, uh, it's, it's an interesting question. And that was, you know, the, the Shirley McKee was, this is early two thousands we're talking, right. Or mid two thousands. Is it around that time? Yeah. Okay. And then, so how did the NAS report of 2009, did it have a very large impact on fingerprint identification or no? I think it did. Um, now if, if you really look at the NAS report, NAS never said the fingerprints are not reliable. Now, there is a lot of the critics of fingerprints quoted in the Nash report. And when the Nash report gets thrown at a fingerprint expert in court, the defense will usually quote one of those critics and say that this is in the Nash report. And that's not that's the critics being quoted in the Nash report. It's not the conclusion of the Nash report itself. But here's where the Nash report was valuable. The Nash report um, said that more testing and validation studies are needed because even though fingerprints has a history of over 100 years, there have never been the stringent uh, validation studies done 
uh, as with other scientists or other sciences. And so I think the Nash report was extremely valuable because it pried loose grant funding for the kind of studies that the critics were saying we needed to do. Okay. Okay. Um, you also have worked on cases where evidence has been fabricated. Uh, so can you talk to me about some of those ones? I mean, they're not as common, but they are super interesting, though. Oh, I, I think they're far more common than uh, most people realize. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. I, I wrote an article well, some years ago for the defense attorney's publication, The Champion, um, in which I said, forget about erroneous identification and focus on latent print fabrication. Look at whether the fingerprints are legitimately from the surface where the uh, police officers say they came from. For example, San Diego, that was the single most prolific fabricator of evidence that I found in my research. Herm Wiggins was a San Diego cop back in the 70s. He was proven to have fabricated over 40 cases. Jim Roberts, who did the investigation on that, claimed that Wiggins had fabricated over 70 cases. And what Wiggins would do is he would um, see a homeless person or a drunk somewhere and, say, and, and pull over his squad car. He was a patrol officer and say, hey, I need to talk to you. Come here. But I've got to pat you down for weapons first. Put your hands on the hood of my car. And, and the guy would put his hands on, on the fender or the hood of Wiggins' squad car, and Wiggins would pat him down. Wiggins would get his name and date of birth and all the information. And then he'd let the guy go, and he'd drive off a few blocks. And then Wiggins would get out of his squad car and fingerprint the hood of his car where the guy had touched. And he would take those lift cards with him to his next crime scene. And then in some of them, he even got the victim of, the, for example, a burglary to sign the card so that they could testify in court. They had seen him lift it. And he would do that by lifting cards. And then as soon as they turned their backs, he'd pull one of those fake cards out of his pocket and slip it in there. And uh, so that was uh, 70 some odd cases by one guy, over 40 of them that he pled guilty to. The New York State Police was at Troop. Ah, the troop uh, escapes me now. In the 80s and early 90s, uh, uh, were fabricating evidence on a wholesale basis. The, the uh, I think six officers were finally convicted in that case. I, I believe it was 11 of them that were suspected. And where some of the senior officers were coaching the, the newer detectives on how to fabricate evidence. So, for example, they might go by the uh, suspect's apartment. On garbage day, pick up his garbage, take it to the lab, process it for fingerprints, develop a few good fingerprints, and then substitute in those in the crime scene prints that they got. Uh, the one that blew that case apart was the Shirley King case, and her name was K-I-N-G-E. They had fabricated uh, a fingerprint evidence on her to prove her, uh, to, to tie her into a murder that she had not participated. Her son had committed the murder. And she had used the stolen credit cards that her son gave her. But she had not participated in the murder. But nonetheless, she was convicted as being part of the murder scene herself. And interestingly, that case exploded when one of the New York State troopers, uh, David Harding, 
had applied for a job with the CIA, and they had asked him, if we hire you and send you undercover into another country, we may ask you to break the laws of that country for our greater good. Could you go into another country and break the laws, knowing that you'd get in trouble if you got caught, but that, 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 that we needed you to do that for the greater good of society? And he said, oh, yeah, I can do that. And they said, well, how do we know you can do that? How do we know you can be the good soldier? And he said, because oh, I do that all the time. And they said, uh, tell us about that. And it turns out that that was not exactly the kind of person they were looking at. And so they reported that to the New York State Attorney General and he opened an investigation that just exploded the whole thing. But it had been going on for years. Yeah, that's so, crazy. And I, if, when I was doing fabrication uh, research back in the early 90s, the number of cases of fabricated fingerprint evidence just blew me away. When I did my first presentation at the IAI, the conference that you'll be going to later this summer, when I did my first uh, presentation at that conference, I had about 130 people in the room when, when I was talking about fabricated fingerprints. And on the spur of the moment, I had no, no foreplanning to do this. I asked, how many of you in this room have actually seen fabricated fingerprint evidence? I don't mean you've heard rumors of it, but I mean you've actually held a fabricated fingerprint lift or photograph yourself that was submitted to your laboratory for identification. And about a fourth of the hands in the room went up. Wow. That's crazy. Oh, it's just insane. I don't know if the problem is still that bad. I mean, that was back in the early nineties and we've come 30 years since then, but um, it's going on. It's still going on. Accreditation and the removal of the fingerprint people from the sworn position to the civilian position, I think, has changed a lot of that. Um, but I'm, I would, I'm sure it's still going on out there. How, I mean, you've testified on hundreds of cases and we, we spoke before. And like you mentioned, you said at the very beginning of your career, when you started testifying, you didn't record what you were, I mean, you didn't, you know, you maybe went, I don't know, once a week, or I don't even know how often or how frequent it was, but you didn't record it even. So there could be Lord knows how many cases you actually testified on. How have you changed as an expert on the stand over the years, like from when you started to today? Just becoming comfortable. Um, like, like any, uh, dogs out there barking. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, like any new witness, the first few times I testified, I was scared absolutely to death. Um, I mean, it's public speaking, and most researchers will tell you that fear of public speaking is stronger than fear of death for most people. And so the first time you get on the witness stand, you're scared absolutely to death. But it's a skill, like any other skill, that you develop through practice. And I've changed to the point now that I'm disappointed if a defense attorney doesn't come after me. I want a very aggressive, very adversarial defense attorney to come after me because I, I know how to testify I know that the longer he keeps me on the stand, the better I can explain what I do to the jury. Um, so I've changed in that way. Yeah. And uh, and I'm wondering if, you know, because you were working with the police, obviously you're doing a lot more prosecution cases, but you do defense cases now as well. Right. So uh, you do a mix. 
And yes, so and I, I've worked as consultant for prosecution and as consultant for defense. And I, I do. Yeah, you're right. I do both. Yeah. And you had taught you had uh, you had written a post about some tactics that defense attorneys will, you know, will do or whatever. And there was one there's one in particular that you mentioned and he would you know, he would try to he try to rattle the, the witness before they got up on the stand. And in some cases it worked. Oh, yeah. That, that was Bob Hirsch, uh, brilliant defense attorney down in southern Arizona. Well, out of Phoenix, I guess. In fact, he was the uh, the. Uh, chief public defender in Maricopa County for a long time. But one of Bob's tactics that uh, we'd heard about in the crime lab was uh, he would, if you were the, he would, he would ask for a recess, a short recess, just before the strongest witness was about to go on. And then he'd walk out of the room and say something to, to uh, throw that witness off their game. My partner at the time, uh, a young woman who worked in our crime lab, um, was going to testify to fingerprint evidence down in Bisbee in, I believe, a narcotics case. And the fingerprints on the narcotics would have been the, the coffin nail that sealed the fate of his client. So uh, just before she was ready to take the stand, she was going to be the next witness. He called for a recess, a short recess. And as he walked out of the courtroom, he just glanced at her and he said, just very nonchalantly, eh, you shouldn't wear stripes. It makes you look fat. And he walked on off. Well, she was overweight, and she went off the deep end. The uh, court clerk had to take her back into a witness room. Uh, she'd gone hysterical. It took her over an hour to calm back down. They had to take other witnesses out of order. And knowing that, uh, when I had a case, it involved three different labs that had been taken down and I'd gotten fingerprints out of all three of them. The first two had blown up during processing, not drugs per se, steroid labs, illegal steroids. The first two had blown up during processing. They were in, in rental storage units. And I'd gotten beautiful fingerprints out of both of them. The third one, they, the, the uh, narcotics investigators took down while he was cooking. And I identified fingerprints in all three. And he had also hired Bob Hirsch, and Bob was going to defend him. So I'm figuring, okay, I'm sitting in the hall getting ready to testify. And what's going to happen is the bailiff is going to come out and announce a short recess just before I go on the stand. So I'll be the next witness. And Hirsch is going to say something to try to throw me off the game. So I've got to beat him at it here. So when the bailiff came out and opened the door and said, uh, uh, he was preceded, the bailiff was preceded by the witness immediately before me. And the bailiff said, we'll be taking about a five minute research, uh, recess. I jumped up and ran into the courtroom, made a beeline for Mr. Hirsch with my hand out and grabbed his hand. He, he saw me coming with my right hand extended. So you automatically reach out to shake hands. And he did. And I said, Mr. Hirsch, I've been looking forward to testifying to you. This is such a such an honor. And, and I can't tell you how eager I am to testify for you. And he's, he knitted his brow and said, Wertheim, Wertheim, that was your brother that was arrested last week for baby rape in Chicago. And I laughed and I said, Hirsch, it won't work. And I turned my back on him and walked away. And when the prosecutor led me through the direct questions and the prosecutor sat down, the judge looked at Mr. Hirsch and said, uh, do you have any questions of this witness? And I leaned forward and kind of smiled. 
And Hirsch stood up and said, no questions. <laughs> <laughs> but his techniques are, are uh, they're not unethical in the legal community. Um, the best book written about him was Death of a Jewish American Princess. And that recounts the story of a husband who stabbed his wife, I think, 47 times. They were Jewish. And the defense that Hirsch put on had a whole lot to do with jury selection. And Hirsch's techniques for selecting a jury for his behavior in court in order to win the jury. And ultimately, the husband was, was acquitted of the murder of his wife. Um, the, the, the title of the book, again, is Death of a Jewish American Princess. And if you want to read a shocking narrative, it was written by another lawyer, a shocking narrative of how jury selection and jury manipulation um, can affect the outcome of a case. I'd, I'd highly recommend that book. Oh, interesting. Well, I think, you know, the fact that you have so much experience with testimony um, is, is really important. That, that could be another area, maybe some lessons learned that you could definitely give gift to some people. Um, you know, for me, I, I found that, um, you know, when, when I had started and I'm, I'm not sure if you were the same way you want to help, right? Like you want to, you want to be helpful to, you know, decide, you know, in your case, the prosecution or, or whatever, but I just find after a while, you're the best, your, your duty is really just to give the evidence and try to make it easily to under, you know, easy to understand for the jury. And if it helps the prosecution, great. If it doesn't great as well, at least they know, uh, you know, and I think that's the important part. I believe you're right, Eugene. I, looking back when I started testifying in the 70s, um, I think I had the same attitude as you. I want to help. I want, I want to help the side that called me to testify. But, um, and I don't know where that paradigm shift occurred during my career, but I, I can't remember when it occurred either. But I know now I want to give the most accurate information I can to the court, to the judge. If, if there's a jury, I want to give the most accurate understanding of the evidence I can to the jury because I don't have the weight of the case on my shoulders. They do. And I don't know all of the other evidence. They, they do. And nonetheless, I'm aware that not all attorneys are equally competent. Not all jurors are unbiased. But if I can just give them the best possible evidence from which to draw their conclusion and the fingerprint evidence may be insignificant. In some of the cases I've testified, I wonder why the heck am I even here? The fingerprints don't matter. You know, um, one, uh, one murder case I was called in, I was there to identify fingerprints that didn't even know had come from, I knew they came from a vehicle. They came from the suspect's vehicle. Well, of course, his fingerprints are going to be on his own vehicle. Why am I here? You know? Um, so I don't know the whole case. I don't know all the facts around the case. I just want to make sure that the jury understands what my evidence is to the best of my ability to explain it. I need to ask you about the Jackson Pollock painting. What, tell me about that one. That sounds, that sounds uh, interesting. When I was doing my, uh, 
research into forgery and fabrication in the early 90s, there were, oh, several times more articles on fingerprint forgery than there were on fabrication, but they were all hypothetical articles, whereas the articles on fingerprint fabrication were all real cases. And in doing my research, I experimented with all of the different methods of fabrication and all of the different methods of forgery to try to learn as best I could how to detect them. And in forgery, in all of the hypothetical articles, there were three methods of forgery that were discussed, and there were different clues for each of the methods of forgery. And one of the methods was a mold cast method, where you would take a mold of a person's fingerprint in a soft subject, a soft substance like I used beeswax, warm it up and press a finger in it, and then I used microsil. Uh, which is a, a liquid uh, latex rubber type of material that you can pour, uh, mix it and then spread it into the surface and let it harden and then peel it out and you've got a rubbery fingerprint. And I had made numerous microsil casts of my fingerprints and experimented on different surfaces with those fingerprints and I learned a number of clues that will always show up that I could not get rid of no matter how carefully I tried. And these were clues that would not show up in real fingerprints, but only in forged fingerprints. And so I had just blown that off as purely hypothetical. Well, then in about 2007, I believe, I was asked to look at a painting owned by a man named Ken Parker up in, on Long Island. And it was a tribute painting uh, tribute meaning that it was a copy of, of the style of Jackson Pollock. And it had some water damage on it from sitting in a storage room. And, and he had sent it to a art restorer in uh, Montreal by the name of Peter Paul Bureau to get it restored. Well, Bureau sent it back and announced it was a Jackson Pollock, an original worth pr probably around $100 million. And he had authenticated it through fingerprints on the painting itself. And Ken Parker didn't believe that because he knew the history of the painting. And he contacted a, a woman who specialized in art authentication. And she hired Tom Handley, who was a police chief in Vermont. And Tom mentioned my name, so she hired me also. And Tom and I worked on that case. We went to Jackson Pollock's studio up in the Hamptons. And in searching his studio, I found a paint can. It was a blue Devo paint can that Jackson Pollock, and Jackson Pollock, for those who don't know, used house paints, oil-based house paints. And he would stretch a, a huge canvas drop cloth on the floor and then spatter paint and pour paint and splash paint and uh just it looked like a used drop cloth that some painter had, had used, but they're ex extremely expensive. Anyway, in one of these cases, the Blue Devil paint can had paint running down the side of the can that had started to harden, and it had a fingerprint right near the top of the can impressed in the paint, three dimensional. Well, Pollock was killed in, I believe, 1956 in a car crash. 
And uh, Tom and I were up there in his studio, which is now the Pollock Krasner Museum. And so we were there in 2007, I believe, 56. So that's what, 50 years after his death. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd seen pictures of Pollock. He was right-handed, and he would hold the paint can in his left hand and stick a big paintbrush in it and then just spatter the paint with that paintbrush all over the all over the canvas. And so I, I had that finger impressed in the paint. So Tom had brought some microsil. So we took a microsil cast of that and made some prints from that microsil cast. And we asked the curator of the museum, had Peter Paul Biro ever visited there? She said, yes, he had. And we asked, was he left alone in the studio? And she said, no, no, he was not. Wait a minute, she says. Let me correct that because I got a phone call and I had to leave him here for about 15 minutes. And then I came back. But other than that, he was never alone in there. So he had been alone in the studio for about 15 minutes. And so he had the opportunity to have cast that. As for his motive, he was going to authenticate this painting and he had a, an elaborate uh, business scheme drawn up with another uh, uh, an associate of his and they were going to borrow money from the sale of this painting when Parker sold it they were going to borrow money to, to expand their own art authentication business as, as I understood the business model anyway um when I looked at those prints on that painting in Ken Parker's home up on Long Island, every single clue to forgery that I had learned during my research 25 years earlier was there. Wow, that's amazing. Every single clue. And there's some great uh, articles on it. Uh, David Gran, G-R-A-N-N, of The New Yorker, did an amazing article for the New Yorker. And if you Google uh, Wertheim and Biro, B-I-R-O, and Grand, G-R-A-N-N, you will get some hits on that case. Uh, one is the New Yorker article, which is 16,000 words long. Unbelievably long for a magazine article, but so detailed. And then David Grant also did a video piece for YouTube uh, where he's recorded talking about the case and showing uh, part of it there. So if you Google Biro, Wertheim, and Grant together, that will take you straight to some of those articles on that case. I have a little bit of experience with microsil and fingerprints for a different study, actually. So um, in my head, I'm thinking about some of the things that can happen. Like you have these little tiny voids, you have little bubbles. Sometimes you have these inclusions. Are these the kinds of things you're talking about? Exactly. Uh, the little tiny bubbles, if you're not paying close attention, they you might mistake them for sweat pores. But when you look at them closer, you realize, whoa, wait a minute. This, this is not a normal sweat pore. It's too big to be a sweat pore. Um, also... The normal shape of a fingerprint on a flat surface is going to be elliptical or, or circular in some way. But when you try to forge a print, you can't get a, a little rubber stamp to make it exactly the same shape it would be with a finger pressed on a flat surface. 
Um, I also commented, even in my article back in the early 90s, that no two fingerprints will ever be exact overlays of each other. That just doesn't happen because the finger will touch at a different angle, a different direction, a different pressure. And when you find two fingerprints that are exact overlays of each other, that's extremely suspicious. Well, on the back of that painting, we had four fingerprints that were exact overlays of each other. They had the scalloped, uh, uneven shape that I would expect from a rubber stamp, but not from a genuine touch. They had the little bubbles that you referred to in the ridges. Um, there was no doubt in my mind that they were forged. Wow, that's amazing. I, we're, I'm totally taking advantage of your time here, but I'll, I'll move on here. So the question is, um, you are working on some research right now with some people. And I mean, you, you know, you're, you're tech retired, quote unquote, one of those retired, you know, but just keeping really busy. So what's what's next for Pat? Like, what what are you what are you working on and, and where do you see yourself going in the near future? Well, I'm still teaching, uh, but. Uh, it, it fatigues me. I'm 75 years old and I'm fighting cancer. So uh, teaching fatigues me with the medications I'm on. And my last full class will be in Clearwater, Florida. If anybody's interested, it's on tritechtraining.com, uh, a link to that class. Um, I'm doing a research and I'm doing two more conferences. I'm doing the NEC users group conference in August in Chicago, and I'll be doing the joint conference of the uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia divisions of the IAI in Cherokee, uh, North Carolina in October. And after that, I think I'm just going to retire and go fishing. <laughs> um, I still do a few defense cases. I've got several active defense cases on my, on my desk here right now. And the research project I'm currently working on is with David Stoney and Christophe Champeau. Um, and it has to do with fingerprints on fired cartridge cases that are not suitable for identification under the old paradigm. Aha, there you go. Let's see. No, that's not it. Scrolled. It's uh, further down. Uh, foundational fingerprint analysis let's see it's um early august there it is there it is yeah foundational friction ridge comparison in clearwater florida and there are still some spaces left in that class if anybody wants to come the class is about 50 percent lecture and 50 percent actual comparison of fingerprints using the techniques that i teach in the lecture um so and and it's weighted the final grade is weighted about 60% towards the practical exercises, in other words, skills, and about 40% towards the lecture or knowledge. Um, there are still spaces available in that class, and that may well be the last time I actually teach a full 40-hour week. Okay. No. Um, yes, and then the, the case I'm working on right now with David Stoney on fired cartridge cases is we're taking fingerprints that have been developed on fired cartridge cases. So far, I've looked at, uh, oh my, um, several hundred, and we will probably look at over a thousand before I'm through. And I do the subject matter expert analysis 
and, and selection of points for comparison. And those that have three or more points of comparison will be analyzed using Christophe Champeau's uh, uh, Christophe is the director of the forensics in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland at the University of Lausanne. They'll be analyzed using his software, Pianos 4, and it's, it's capital P, little i, capital A, little n, little o, capital S, 4, Pianos 4, and that uh, stands for, uh, I forget the acronym. I, I can't remember all the acronyms. I don't, I don't uh, nonetheless, it's a software program that calculates a likelihood ratio. Now, the question that David Stoney wants to ask on this project is, is there any information that we could derive from a lesser number of points than is required for a full identification? Is there any information that we could give the jury as far as uh, more likely made by him than some other person in the general population. Now, I'm not a big fan of qualified identifications or likelihood ratios, but nonetheless, I can see that that is important research. Um, even if I don't think it is something we should be doing, I can see that if I can help with a research project that proves we should be doing it or likewise proves we shouldn't be doing it either way. I'm eager to help with that research. So uh, I'm I'm working through all of these latent prints and plotting the points in Pianos 4 that I would use as a latent print examiner. And then David Stoney and Christophe Champeau and others that work with Christophe, Marco, and I forget Marco's last name. I'm sorry, Marco. Um, they will be doing the statistics statistical analysis based on the points that I have plotted to determine if they can come up with some way of providing any kind of likelihood that might be of benefit to the court or the trier of fact on fired shell casings. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I, and I know that, I mean, that's, uh, Christoph has been doing this sort of thing with likelihood ratios and statistics and all this sort of thing for a very long time. I know Glenn Langenberg has been talking about it as well. So I, there seems to be um, a big move into this area, not just in fingerprints, but in, in many areas. Oh yeah. Glenn and I interestingly uh, did a, a mock trial sort of thing in California in May at the California division conference where we had a couple of hours on the program and he was a fingerprint witness and one of the other fingerprint experts there took Glenn through the prosecution presenting a qualified conclusion of it's probably his fingerprint, but there's not strong enough support for a full identification. And then I played the part of the defense attorney trying to tear apart his uh, qualified conclusion. And uh, Glenn's very, very good. And that's the direction we're going. Yeah, I think so. Let me, uh, I'm going to put up your, uh, this is your LinkedIn profile and I'd, I'd like people to, uh, feel free to mess up, uh, you know, just reach out to Pat and connect. Uh, he's got, uh, like I can already see you got six K followers here. You're like, uh, very well connected. And, uh, look, Pat, I just want to say thank you. Uh, just great, uh, information. Um, 
I'm sorry we went a little bit over, but you know, just really interesting cases, a lot of great, uh, great feedback, uh, a lot of lessons learned, and I'm sure we could easily do more. And I hope to invite you back in the future. Uh, so, you, don't, you don't have to apologize to me, Eugene. I just hope we have it. I've got all afternoon. I'm retired, right? <laughs> uh, I hope uh, that the attendees or the viewers were able to stay with us. And I would encourage anybody out there who would like to uh, connect with me or follow me on LinkedIn, Pat Wertheim. And uh, I post every Monday morning some interesting case I worked. Some of them are trivial. The one this week was just funny. It was just a little comedy, but some of it is serious philosophy. Some of it's historical perspective. Some of it, some of the case studies are tragic cases. Um, I've talked about cases, uh, some of them like um, Marianne Holmes case or uh, some of the others that are uh, major cases. So Monday mornings I post, connect with me or, or follow me on LinkedIn, and uh, I'd love to see you there too. Excellent. Pat, hang back for a bit. I'm going to uh, just say a closing remarks here and then uh, I'll hook up with you in a minute. Good. Thank you. Anyway, I want to wish you all a very happy Thursday. At some point, we'll be back and uh, see you next time. Bye bye.